You can turn to John 16. All right, sort of in that middle section there, starting in uh, verse 16. I'll give you a moment. Of course, we're in the, uh, we've moved past the upper room discourse. Jesus and his disciples are making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. And he's preparing his disciples for what is going to happen. And so there's been a lot of that. And this is a very um, emotionally charged sort of setting. And it's kind of hard, obviously, when we, we're talking about this week after week. Hey, it sort of sounds like the news sometimes. Um, just the bad stuff just seems to keep coming. Um, now, this took place in the course of one evening. Uh, this is one long discussion, but we're looking at it over the course of uh, weeks and months. So uh, please keep that in mind. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and a little while again, and and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, You will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Uh, Father, Cain sarcastically asked, Am I my brother's keeper? We thank you for our big brother Jesus, who indeed is our keeper. And he keeps us not just by his hand, but also by his word. And so help us to listen to Jesus this morning. But help us to listen not with our own agenda, our own expectations of what he ought to say or needs to say, Help us to not demand answers to the questions we have, but rather to listen to what he offers us for the furtherance of his purposes in our lives. We ask this in his name. Amen.
It's tempting, I think, in a week like this, when I'm talking about sorrow, to jump to the news. I'm not going to do that. Okay? I sat there moments ago debating whether I should change my opening illustration. I'm going to stick with what I had. And that has to do with the birth of my daughter. It was not an easy time in many ways. It was easier on me than my wife, obviously. Um, But through the course of Amy's pregnancy, we had a couple of bumps along the road, and one of those bumps became a problem, so to speak. We had gone to the ultrasound, and something was wrong. Jaden was not as big as she was supposed to be. Now, it was, you know, what they basically said was, you need to have a higher level ultrasound, and we don't have that here. So we were spent, sent to the specialist uh, who was in Lakeland, Florida, and uh, there got the bigger one, and our fears were allayed greatly because it sounded almost as if something really bad had happened. But what we found was that there was something bad, but it just wasn't really bad, that her growth was inhibited in the womb. And so we had to keep a special eye on things. That was a little bit of joy after a very painful night of uncertainty. And so, you know, we ended up having to schedule the birth of Jaden because she had to be induced because of all the other issues there kind of going on. And we wanted a New Year's Eve baby. I am shamelessly cheap. And I thought, tax refund, tax refund. Okay. And we were told, oh, sorry, they're already booked. <laughs> like, how can you be booked? <laughs> I guess everyone was trying to have a New Year's Eve baby. And so a few days later, we were supposed to check in, and we did that. And, and it's one thing, I guess, when you watch someone giving birth on TV or in a movie, and it's another when you have a front row seat. Okay? And they're grabbing your hand and squeezing that hand as the contractions come. Because as the doctor described it, because we're inducing her uh, to birth, with, uh, it's going to come fast and furious. And so uh, those early birth pains, maybe Sharon doesn't need to be here right now. <laughs> was difficult. It was difficult. Uh, but prior to, you know, getting to that point, you know, we had to have the discussion about the epidural, you see. And I'm cheap. <laughs> and I thought my wife would be in that new, that wave of people that, you know, wants to, to experience all the natural aspects of childbirth. And she said, epidural. <laughs> Okay, I lost that discussion, and I should have lost that discussion, Okay, because I am not the one who would have been wading through the contractions. It is her. Okay, but, but, you know, that process that goes on for hours and hours, there are tears and there's pain and everything else, and, but the result is 
at least in most of the cases, and in this case, joy. It's probably the happiest day in my life. But that was only at 7.30 p.m. Before that, it was not such a happy day. Although, much happier for me than for Amy. Jesus brings up this illustration in the midst of this text for a very important reason, because it's something that we can all identify with, but also it makes an important point that we'll get to in a little bit. But we are to expect, I believe, some measure of sorrow and pain in this world, and if we don't have the proper perspective on that, bad things will happen to us. Okay. Our big idea is that Jesus turns sorrow into joy. And I want us to to first reckon with this idea that sorrow breeds doubts that Jesus must address. Let me say that again. Sorrow breeds doubts Jesus must address. Uh, Jesus makes a statement that confused the disciples. And I'll be honest with you, it confused a lot of commentators as well. He says, A little while and you will see me no longer and a little, again a little while, and you will see me again. The disciples aren't really sure what Jesus is telling them. And so they start to talk to one another, precisely because they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And I will say that they are in good company, maybe. Okay, they're in company, precisely because their confusion is reflected in a number of commentaries as people have speculated as to what in the world Jesus was talking about. It's pretty clear to me what Jesus was talking about, but then again, maybe, you know, I've missed something. But the point here is that they're talking amongst themselves. Okay? Now, some have thought that Jesus is talking about the time between his first advent and his second advent, meaning the second coming, the end of the world. Okay, um, But when we men remember that Jesus talks about this in a little while, in both instances, in a little while you will not see me, and in a little while again you will see me, we have to keep, take into account the fact of the resurrection. This is the key issue upon which, in a sense, all of this kind of hangs together and comes together. Okay? It's precisely because the disciples at this point in their lives did not grasp the reality of the resurrection and its implications that they're confused. That's the key. In a little while, they're not going to see him again because he's going to be put upon the cross, he's going to be killed, and he's going to be buried. And so indeed, for a little while, they're not going to see him. But he says, a little while longer, and you will, he will be resurrected, he will minister to them for 40 days before he ascends into heaven. But they don't understand that. It's beyond them at this point. Okay? We can have compassion on them. It's very easy for us sometimes on this side of the resurrection to be a little harsh on those on the other side of the resurrection. They had no pegs to hang that thing on, okay? 
because the resurrection changed everything. We've got to remember that. They would not see him for a while. But the bottom line I kind of want us to get at here is that we can sometimes, just like the disciples, be very confused about what Jesus and what the Scriptures mean. Even though we, on this side of the resurrection, though we who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that does not mean that we are going to perfectly understand the Scriptures. Because even our Westminster Confession talks about how, though while they are clear on important matters, they are, they are not as clear on everything. And so there are some things about the Scriptures that we should struggle with. That's the question that really, of what you do with that struggle. And one of the things that is true is that sorrow tends to create these things that we call doubts. Now, I've never been pregnant, but I put myself into the shoes of a pregnant woman, so to speak. What would it be like? Think of all of the things that now you start thinking about that Sharon is probably thinking about, and I guess I should have asked Amy about all the things she thought about, but... It's very natural for us to, can I make it through childbearing? I mean, just the whole gestational period, all the changes that are going to come to my body and the things I don't expect, uh, it's the, the discomfort that never ends, so to speak, and just kind of grows through the course of nine months. I mean, Sharon, are you ready to be done? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you anticipate gestational diabetes? No. But... It, it's shaping her experience right now. Her diet has had to change. Okay? She can't come over to my house and we can't feed her dinner because she's got to be very careful about what she eats, more careful than we have to be. But then there's also the reality of, will I be able to make it through the birth pangs? I've never, I mean, you see, I would imagine I being weak, Okay, would probably spend many nights in those nine months thinking about that day and being filled with like dread over that day. Okay, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be as bad as I think it's going to be? Is it going to be worse or is it going to be a piece of cake? Okay, am I going to make it? And when we experience sorrows, we begin to have those similar kind of, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it through this? Will I be destroyed by this? Think of the families who lost loved ones in the shooting in Oregon. They're born right now wondering, am I going to make it through this? Where was God? Doubts and fears often are produced by suffering, by confusion. Especially when we keep it to ourselves. It's been very popular in recent days to talk about how, as a Christian, doubts are your friends. And, and I'll, I don't agree with that statement. Okay, But there's some people who think doubts are your friends. I think doubts can be your friend. Okay, It all depends what you do with your doubts. If you're doing what the disciples were doing, they're deadly. Because it's just... Commonly pulled ignorance. What do you think he means? I don't know what he means. What do you think he means? They're not going to get anywhere. They needed to bring their confusion to Jesus. Now, 
in the text it says Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, but remember, they didn't ask him. So it's sort of being polite, perhaps, to the disciples who weren't asking, but were talking amongst themselves. And Jesus is the one who comes into the conversation and says, what are you talking about? Why are you stumbling over this? Let us remember that Jesus, according to Isaiah 42, is that he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 12, verse 20. And so when we need to remember that, that when we bring our confusion, when we bring our doubts to Jesus, it, He's not going to be like, I can sometimes be with my children. He's not harsh. He understands. He understands that we are but flesh. He understands that we are but made by du- from dust. He understands that we're sinful and that we're weak. And it's as we bring those doubts, that confusion, that fear to Him, that they begin to lose their control and power over us. But if you keep it to yourself, then it can be deadly to faith. So if you're bringing your doubts to Jesus, then they become your friends. Precisely because He begins, they're drawing you to Him, who is the one who can answer to a degree those doubts that you have. And so Jesus addresses their confusion. He also addresses, I think, their reticence, their reluctance to actually address Him in a gentle and kind sort of rebuke. And so difficult times raise difficult questions that only Jesus can address for us. Let's go to the second aspect of this. And that is that this is the main idea of the whole thing. And that Jesus brings joy from sorrow. Now, when Jesus answers their confusion, he does this in sort of a roundabout way. He doesn't say, this is precisely what I meant. Okay? You're not, if you look for it, you're not going to find it there, which is why all the commentators go, what did he mean by this? Because he doesn't answer it. Because that's not the point. The point is not perfect knowledge. The point is trusting Jesus. And that is where he's going to draw them in the midst of this. Trust me. He says, if you read uh, Corey Temboon's story, there's, I um, can't remember which one of the two books it's in, um, but she tells the story of, of her and her father riding the train when she was a kid. And her dad, because he was a watchmaker, you know, had all of his tools in this case and every heavy case. And, and she, being the child, not always thinking through everything, as children don't. Dad, can I carry the case? He says, no, it's too heavy for you. And where Corey kind of goes with that and where her father goes with that is that there are things that are too heavy for us to carry. Uh, There are truths that might be, we might want the answer to this question, but the truth, the answer might be too heavy for us to carry. And so God doesn't tell us but he helps us nonetheless. 
because he calls us to trust him and his character. And so here Jesus prepares them for what is to come, not by giving them the easy answer, but pointing them to the real reality. And he says, unfortunately for them, you will weep and lament. He speaks to them of deep grief that is expressed outwardly. This is not a show. These, it's not going to be like the experience of the professional mourners that a family would hire that would come along and, you know, weep and wail and, and I, I don't even know what that is, is for. It's just a weird cultural custom that they had at that point in time. And I don't understand it one bit. They're not going to be faking it. They're going to be truly devastated, is what Jesus is saying. He's warning them about this devastation that they're going to experience. That his, his trial, his crucifixion, and his death would break their hearts in two. It would crush them. I was born a couple years afterwards, but I saw the footage about what it was like for this nation when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. It broke the heart of this nation. He was a beloved president. And the nation was crushed. Or, perhaps if that's not in your frame of reference, when Lady Di was killed in the accident. I mean, maybe you didn't feel that. I remember I found out about it. I was in the middle of Tennessee on a weekend trip, climbing rocks and rappelling and everything. We stopped at a store, and there's it on the, news, the newsprint. And it's like, whoa, what in the world just happened? Great Britain was devastated. That's what it is getting at here. A pain that you cannot escape, that goes to the very core of your being, and you can't do anything but weep and weep aloud. And there's the spin. Because Jesus doesn't stop. You will weep and lament, but... But the world will rejoice. R.C. Sproul says that Jesus was talking about the supreme conflict, the conflict that pitted Him against the world, the flesh, and the devil, who couldn't wait for Jesus' blood to be spilled on the cross and for His corpse to be put in the tomb. And so while the disciples are heartbroken over the death of Jesus, the world and the devil rejoiced. It's hard for us to think about that, to kind of grasp that. But for most of us who are older than 15, we have a picture of that. Because while we wept on 9-11, we saw video of people in Palestine singing and dancing, jumping up for joy. That the, from their perspective, the great Satan or that evil, powerful nation, however they want to think about it, had been struck a blow and they rejoiced over the death of those people in the two towers and in the Pentagon. That's what it's like. The ones who love Jesus are weeping, and those 
who hated him, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they were dancing, rejoicing. He's dead. He's dead. Sort of like the end of the Wizard of Oz. Ding dong, the witch is dead. They had the wrong perspective on things. Jesus again stresses the sorrow they're about to experience. You will be sorrowful. In other words, they should not be taken aback by what they're going to experience. They should not kid themselves. He's preparing them for this. But then He offers them hope in the midst of it when He says, your sorrow will turn to joy. Not your sorrow will end and then you'll be happy, but your sorrow itself will turn to joy. And He explains this with the birth metaphor. Because one of the things that happens is you've got sorrow as you're trying to give birth. The very, the very thing that's causing the sorrow, the child trying to pass through this relatively small opening in the body, that, when it's done, is going to produce joy. And that's why I say that one of the happiest days of my life was when I held that little tiny person in my arm. Words for that. But if you've done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That no matter how tired you were, how long it was, how much you cried, and all the pain that you may still have felt if you didn't get the epidural, you rejoiced. And if you're the father who, you know, who had to deal with this after the days when you could sit out in the waiting room and smoke a cigarette or a cigar or whatever and watch the TV. If you were actually in the room, you rejoiced. Because now watching your beloved wife suffer is done. But even better, here's the fruit of that suffering. The child that you're able to hold in your arms. Jesus, of course, is drawing upon a rich heritage within the Old Testament about the this metaphor. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Micah. You've got references in your notes if you got them. Okay. But it was usually tied together with what Messiah would do. And that getting from point A to point B was not a piece of cake. But it was compared to a woman giving birth. There was distress. There is uncertainty that comes through it. But eventually, there is joy that comes through it. So that is why we see in places like Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with, with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the, his sheaves with him. It's the same idea. You're going out, you're, you're sowing, and you're coming back having reaped. And so the, the tears and the joy are connected to the same thing. That the seeds have become a harvest. Okay? And it's this, this joy that erupts, so to speak, that is meant to be our strength. Nehemiah 8 ta- talks about this. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, Drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing, who has nothing ready. 
for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your, is your strength. And he's telling them that the time for grieving is done. They had been hearing the law read aloud, and they realized the greatness of their sin, and so they were broken and tearful and crying. And he, Nehemiah has to remind them, it's done. The repentance is done. It's time to rejoice in the Lord. And that joy is intended to be the strength that carries you forward. Now, from this we see that the very thing that produces the pain, the child, is the same thing that produces the joy. But we're also meant to see that the thing which produces the disciples' pain, the cross, is the very thing that will produce the disciples' joy, the cross. Now, this is one of those statements that he is speaking to them directly about their circumstances, and, and we don't, we're not in those circumstances. Okay. Jesus' time in the tomb is done. But we are in similar circumstances while he's away in that we continue to experience profound sorrow even though we are on this side of the resurrection. We will weep. We will lament. We will feel forgotten. We will feel abandoned. We will feel confused. And here's the bad news. There ain't no epidural. We sometimes try to find one. That's why people struggle with addictions of various kinds. They're trying to numb the pain of life. Okay? But there's no epidural. There's not intended to be an epidural to take away this pain, but it is meant to be brought to Jesus. We tend to want to run away from... Um, what one author calls the heat and thorns of life. If you're in our, if you're going to be part of our ladies' heart to heart ministries, you're going to study how people change. And one of the things they talk about in that book is the heat and the thorns. And see, part of our problem is, is that we think those are our enemies. That somehow the heat and the thorns will destroy us. And we're meant in Christ to see them as part of that process of how God changes us. That's when truth becomes more real to us. When it goes out of our heads and into our hearts. Okay? Those times of sorrow are intended to make you live on the truth to realize that um, you are not meant to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Okay? They're trying. There are God's means to make us grow, which is why John Newton wrote a song, and um, it's in some, I don't think it's in our hymnal. It ought to be in our hymnal. If it's not, I didn't check. Uh, Indelible Grace does a version of it. 
And it's called, I asked God that I might grow. And the whole purpose of this hymn is, is, you know, Newton asking God, help me grow. And what we tend to think of, help me grow, is, you know, give me time to read your word, give me time to, uh, you know, the good stuff. And the, the, the song details the hard providences that Newton goes through that he might grow. Because everything that he relies upon in addition to Jesus has to be removed, so he's relying only on Jesus. And no one likes that. None of us like that. But yet, that is what God does for our good in His glory. And so our sorrows will also turn to joy precisely because Jesus died and He rose again for us. One of my favorite songwriters is someone that you've never heard of, I imagine, uh, Terry Taylor. And uh, he's got an album out that a couple years ago that I was listening to at the gym. And there's this one line, before he danced, Jesus wept. And it alludes to that. You'll go out in mourning and you'll come back with joy. First comes the weeping, then comes the dancing. Now, there is a way in which, as Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. Now, Jesus does not mean that they will never experience sadness. Okay? They'll never, doesn't, he doesn't mean they'll never experience disappointment. But their joy is connected, you know, for them it's, I will see you again. Okay? Um, ours, I think, is really connected to the fact that he now sits at the Father's right hand where he reigns and rules for us, but one day we will see him face to face. Okay? And so in a sense, our joy is not about our circumstances, which are fleeting and change, but our joy is Christ himself, who gives himself to us. So our sorrows, while they're very real, will result in greater joy precisely because Jesus was raised. Thirdly, the Father preserves our joy through prayer. And that's important for us to understand that the Father preserves our joy through prayer. As I've noted, the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for the disciples, and it's intended to change everything for you and me as well. After 40 days, Jesus would go to the Father through the ascension in order to rule on our behalf, but also to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So on the one hand, that's that's not what Jesus is talking about here, but I want to throw that in as a bonus for you to encourage you that that when life is difficult and you can't pray for yourself or feel you're not able to pray for yourself, Jesus, if you are his, prays for you. He continues to intercede for his people that he might save them completely from beginning to end. So, behind this text, there's that additional truth that goes on there. But he talks about this confusing statement, another confusing statement. Um, Let me quote it. Um, Nope, I'm in the wrong part. 
In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. There's some confusion as to what is meant there. Does that mean we no longer make our requests known to Jesus, but only to the Father? Or is it that they're not asking Jesus questions about things? And we, we should note that the two asks are in Greek different verbs. And so I, I kind of lean towards the idea that they're not, they're not going to ask Jesus questions anymore. It's not that they're not going to pray to Jesus, because he's already told them what they ask for him, okay? But the real important part is that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Their prayer matters, and our prayer matters, okay? We are able to pray precisely because Jesus has died and been risen on our behalf. And it is on that 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 Paul says in Ephesians 2, through him we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have access to in one spirit to the Father. And so our capacity, our ability to pray has been won by Jesus. Not in the physical mechanics of opening our mouths, but the fact that the Father listens to us, that He hears our cries, and He cares. We have access because of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is why when we see, when we think about our suffering, it results in prayer, or ought to result in prayer. Uh, Think about the text that we read already in Romans 8. It's talking about how we're groaning inwardly because of the futility that creation has been subjected to. And what happens? We don't know what to pray, but the Spirit works in us to pray. Even if on our part it's groaning. Uncertainty. Our sorrow and our confusion should drive us to pray even when we don't know what we should be praying for. Don't, brothers and sisters, don't be mired in your sorrow, in your doubt, and in your confusion. Don't sit in it like a pig in mud. Make use of the access you have been granted by the Father, through the Son, and pray. Why? Ask, and you will receive, and again, that your joy may be full. He's connecting your joy in Christ with your prayer life. Now, often we don't think about it that way. We think of the drudgery of prayer. But Jesus is connecting it with your joy. And one way the Father preserves or maintains your joy in Christ is through prayer. Especially when you're sorrowful, disappointed, confused. 
I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about your circumstances. Again, I'm talking about joy. That's why in Philippians 4, here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. You knew I was going there, didn't you? Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. What takes your joy in Christ away? Your anxiety about your fears and your doubts and all of that stuff. What are you supposed to do in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Let your requests be made known to God. In other words, when you're feeling anxious and your joy is ebbing away, pray and rejoice. Similarly, we see in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing or trusting so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so it's sort of a benediction that Paul wants for them. He wants them to be overflowing with joy and peace and it only comes as they trust. And one of the tangible signs of trust is prayer. And so we see, I think, a pattern that emerges when we look at Scripture. And Calvin talks about the distinction between faith and hope. You know, faith is believing what God has promised, but hope is connected to it in that it expects God to actually do what He promised. And so I've, I've talked about this before, and I'm going to do it again. I see the best way I have to understand hope in some sense is like a life preserver. Okay, Because when the wave comes and pushes you way down, the life preserver brings you back up. When the sorrows of life crush you way down, hope, the expectation that what God has promised will come to pass, brings you back up to the surface. And it's not you bringing yourself up to the surface. It's the Gospel, it's hope bringing you back up to the surface so that you continue to live and breathe. And when we have that fresh air, instead of uh, fighting against the water, we have joy. When we have hope, we have joy. Again, not about our circumstances, but rooted in a salvation that sustains us in the midst of sorrow. Many of those people have, well, the people who were shot in Oregon, they're sons and daughters of people. And a lot of marriages don't survive that. Whether it's a shooting or whether it's an illness or whatever. The fact is that a lot of couples don't survive the loss of a child. Why? Because they have no hope. That passage in Thessalonians that we read every time we have a memorial service, it talks specifically about the, the grief of loss, but that, I think, can be expanded. 
We do mourn because we experience sorrow of various kinds, but we are not those who mourn without hope. It is because of Christ resurrected we have hope, not just in the face of death, but whatever sorrow life brings. We have hope. And we can rejoice even as we cry. Anyway, sorrow comes to us all. Often it is like birth pains that feel like they will overwhelm us and destroy us. But instead of giving birth to the wind, as Isaiah says, in Christ these things give birth to great joy that the world cannot take away from us because the world didn't give it to us. This joy is preserved as we seek God in prayer by faith, trusting Him. He will deal with your doubt, with your fears, with your sorrows. He will deal tenderly with your heart. But bring it to Him. Don't hang on to it. Offer it up. That's what the psalmists did. And it was when they tried to hang on to it that they became among the most miserable human beings on the face of the earth. Brute beasts, as David says. Let's pray. Father, it is hard for us, I think. I I know personally for me, it is hard to turn to you when I'm in the midst of uh, such pain. And that, that is the very thing that we need to do. That faith in your promises, and the expectation that you will keep them needs to bring us up out of the pit that we have fallen in. Out of the watery deep that we have found ourselves in. Father, thank you that really most of this is not what they have done. It's what you have done. It's not about what we do, but about what you have done in our doing. But help us to remember these words when we're suffering. That by them, Jesus will keep us. Because by them, he points us back to him. Who's able to hold us in his hand. Who's able to bind our broken hearts. Who's able to nurture us back to life when we think it's all broken. Help us not to be overcome by the sorrows we experience. Not to be overcome by the doubts that bounce in our brains. But to look to Jesus in the midst of them. Ask this in His name. Amen.